welcome to Journey. It's good to see you guys. What an amazing time of worship already. And I know for me, just being like blown away with, I could just feel God's love. I could just feel, and here's the thing, God loves you. You hear us say this all the time if you come to Journey. God loves you. He really does. He so loves you. And it doesn't matter where you've been, what you've done. None of those things matter to him. He loves you and he's calling you to himself. I hope you hear that. I hope you hear him calling you. We are in a series called Messy Church. And there's so many layers to the, just this title, Messy Church. Like, there's the obvious, if, if you're watching online, by the way, we're so glad you guys are watching online. But if you're watching online, maybe it's not as obvious to you. But this place is a mess and Friday, I walked in, and I was standing in this room, and it didn't look anything like it does right now. And I was just going, how in the world are we going to have service in here on Sunday? And we had some incredible volunteers who came last night, just an army of volunteers who turned this place back into a sanctuary. So thank you to everyone who, who helped with that. And so there's that layer. Like, we are literally a physical mess around here. Um, but then there's the mess of, you know, apart from the grace of God, I hate to break it to you, but you are a mess, <laughs> and I am a mess, and uh, we're, we're messy, and sometimes we, we feel that and see that in our families and in our workplaces, certainly in the world, like what a mess. And then when we look at even go backwards and we look back at the first church and we have this remarkable book that is written for us, the book of Acts, which tells us about the first 30 years of the church after Jesus' death and resurrection and his ascension. And, and we get a picture of that first church. And sometimes we can romanticize that church and make it seem like it was so much better than it was. But when we really start reading through the accounts of that first church, we see that they were a mess. And we see the messes that were going on in that. And, and I don't know about you, that gives me hope. Because when I read about their messes, I go, oh, okay. <laughs> we're not so far from normal, right? And how God breathes the breath of his Holy Spirit into messes. And if we're honest, we just come before God and say, God, just you know me. You know my heart. You know what a mess I am. You know how broken I am. God, would you breathe your breath into me and how he loves to do that. How he delights to do that. And so today we're going to look at an account, and we've been doing this. We're not going to get through every account in the book of Acts in this series, but we've just been trying to highlight, I mean, now for like four or five weeks, some of these messes that are so obvious in the book of Acts. Today we're going to, we're going to start in the end of Acts chapter 7, and we'll find ourselves in Acts chapter 8 and in Acts chapter 9 and some other passages as well. But we want to look at a mess, and, and here's the, I got, I got to give you this caveat. Like if you've grown up in church world, and I'm so tempted to ask, but I won't. But some of you grew up, like you did the whole deal, like Sunday school, and you were in services, and Sunday nights, and Wednesday nights, and, and you went to VBS, and you taught VBS. And what I'm going to share this morning is a really, for, for a lot of people in this room, it's a familiar story. And if we're not careful, it just becomes so familiar that we go, oh, I know what he's sharing. And you just kind of check out, and like you're, you know, updating your Instagram or whatever, like during service. I, I want to really encourage you. To really stay with me and to not just go, oh, I know the story, and to check out. So I want to start with, before we get into Acts chapter 7, I want to start with this question. When you think about your circle of influence, people that you know personally, I want to ask you this. Who is the least likely person that you know to come to faith in Christ? Like when, you, when you think about the people that you know, maybe, maybe a classmate at school, or maybe it's a coworker, or maybe it's a cousin, and this is a person who, they're just mean. I mean, they just 
radiate like anger. Like there's this, just this brewing anger going on all the time. Or maybe, maybe it's the thing where anytime God is even remotely mentioned, like they just get amped up and they just start going on attack mode. Or maybe, I mean, it could be all kinds of different scenarios. Maybe they're just rude. They're just constantly, and, and so when you think in your mind, who is the least likely person in your family, in your orbit of influence to become a follower of Jesus? Do, do you have a name? I want, you, I want you to think about that for a moment. We're going to come back to this in a few minutes. But I think if you would go back to A.D. 40, and you were to pull this first generation of Jesus followers, that they're just emerging, this, they were called the way, this, this movement of followers of Jesus. And you were to pull them and you were to say, hey, who is the least likely person that you know of to become a follower of Jesus? I think they would all point to the same person. And we're first introduced to him, actually in a kind of a subtle way, in Acts chapter 7, verse 58. The scene is, in Acts chapter 7, the scene is, uh, if you were here last week, we talked about um, the widows weren't being fed properly, and so the Greek-speaking widows weren't being um, fed with the same love and compassion as the Hebrew-speaking, the Jewish uh, widows. And so, um, and so there was this debate that went on, and the apostles said, hey, you need to select seven people to be in charge of this. And one of the seven individuals who actually wasn't one of the Hebrews, he was actually one of the Greek-speaking individuals, was a guy named Stephen. And Stephen, you know, at first it looks like he's just, you know, the guy back in the kitchen, like serving the widows. But what we find is that that just becomes like the beginning point of a pathway of him serving the Lord. And, and God begins to use him powerfully. And the next thing you know, he's dragged in front of the religious authorities and they put him on trial and he testifies. I mean, his testimony that he gives is legendary, that you see in Acts chapter 7. But at the end of it, they're just, they don't, they don't want to hear it, and so they decide that they're going to kill him. And we all know, or hopefully if you've been around church, you know how horrible crucifixion is as a form of killing people. You know, probably ranking in the top five would also be a form of death called stoning. And they would take a person outside, usually outside the city limits, and they would find like a recessed area, so you'd be kind of down, almost in like kind of a pit area, and they would pick up, not like little pebbles, not little stones, they would pick up like the biggest stones that they could handle, and they would just lob them at this person, mercilessly. Like you'd have dozens of people in a circle just lobbing these stones at this person, and they, this person would literally die by people just throwing stones at them. And that's what they did to Stephen. It's crazy. It's insane. He becomes the first Christian martyr, Stephen does. And, and here's an interesting point that, that Luke, who is the writer of the book of Acts, brings up. He says, Stephen's accusers, this is in verse 58, Stephen's accusers took off their coats and laid them at the feet of a young man named Saul. Everybody say Saul. Saul is the least likely, in the first generation of Jesus followers, if you were to ask them, they would say Saul is the least likely to become a follower of Jesus. And, and the reason why they give, I mean, think of if you're in a pickup basketball game, and you've got on like an expensive coat, you know, your mama got you this for Christmas, and, and now you're like shedding layers because you're playing basketball, and it's like 100 degrees outside, and so you're, maybe it's a nice sweatshirt or something, and you're not just going to hand that thing over to someone on the sidelines who you don't know. You'd hand it to someone that you respect, right? Someone that you know has got your back. And, and so the reason why he's collecting all their coats, he wasn't necessarily lobbing the stones at Stephen, but he was there accusing him. He was there almost as a leader of this whole deal. 
And so several verses, Luke goes on in Acts chapter 8, verse 1. He says, Saul was one of the witnesses to the stoning of Stephen, and he agreed completely with the killing of Stephen. Verse 3, Saul was going everywhere to destroy the church. He went from house to house, dragging out both men and women to throw them into prison. If if you're reading this in the Greek, the Greek actually makes this a lot more intense than maybe our English translations do. The, the, The Greek wording is the same as a wild animal mangling its prey. Last Monday, we were in staff meeting, and, you know, we're, we're talking about this week and going through some things, and in the window, we see a dog go running, and then a few minutes later, we see a guy go running after the dog, and then the dog comes running back, and the guy's coming running after him, and we see that the dog in his mouth has a rabbit, and he's just, you know, just going to town with it. That rabbit was dead already. I trust, trust me, that, that thing was a goner. And it's the same, like, when, the Greek, when, when Luke is using language to describe Saul, he's like, he's like a wild animal who's just going at, like, mangling its prey, right? A chapter later, Luke uh, comes back to this guy in Acts chapter 9, verse 1. He says, meanwhile, Saul was uttering threats with every breath. You get, you get in the picture here? You go, you go, yeah, Ken, you're taking a long time to give us the picture. But, like, this guy is consumed. Like, Saul can't think of anything else but wiping out this movement of Christianity. Like, he wanted them dead. He wanted them snuffed out completely. He's uttering threats with every breath and was eager to kill the Lord's followers. So he went to the high priest... This is how eager this guy is. He goes to the high priest. He requested letters addressed to the synagogues in Damascus, asking for their cooperation in the arrest of any followers of the way that would be followers of Jesus that he found there. He wanted to bring them, both men and women, back to Jerusalem in chains. So so we have this picture of Saul, and first we have the picture of him standing there as the bloodied, naked corpse of Stephen is laying cooling on the ground. He's part of this new wave of terrorism against followers of Jesus. He's going wild, ravaging and devastating the church, dragging men and women to prison. And he's described as breathing threats and murder against Jesus' disciples. He's a bad human being. Can we all agree with this? This is a bad human being. Like, you think of that person who's the least likely to become a follower of Jesus. And I think most of us, I hope most of us could agree, well, at least they're not as bad as Saul. Maybe you even think about your own life, and you think, well, honestly, I'm the least likely to become a follower of Jesus. You're not any worse than Saul was. I promise you, there's nothing that you've done that is any worse. So when you think about the first followers of Jesus, what kind of emotion do you think they had towards Saul? I mean, they were normal human beings just like you and I. They didn't have capes tucked into the, into the back. Like, I mean, they, they were just like us. How do you think they felt about Saul? Anger, right? Like hopelessness. So, so th- when these early followers of Jesus would get together, Acts chapter 2 says that they were meeting together daily. And they were meeting together, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, but they also devoted themselves to prayer. And we wonder, like, what, what were the things that these early followers of Jesus, as they're gathering together daily in these homes, what were they praying about? And there was one scholar that I was reading uh, in, in the last couple of weeks, and, and he said he had an idea of what these guys were praying. And, and I started thinking about this. The more I read what he said, the more I'm like, I absolutely agree with this. And I think I've shared this in the past. But I think they were going back to, you know, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They didn't have the New Testament yet, right? They didn't have, I mean, maybe 
maybe there's like a gospel here or there that's being, you know, spread around, or maybe, but that would be it, right? And so the only thing that they had to go off of is, fortunately, they had the apostles still there in their midst. And so when they would devote themselves to the apostles' teaching, it was like Peter would be in the room, and they would pack out like this house, and they would all be like, tell us the stories, Peter. Tell, tell us what went down. Tell us, tell us the reality of what was going on. And Peter would just start telling stories. Well, there was this one time, and, and we were over in Capernaum, and, and then there was this one time, and, and we're up on a mountain, and Jesus just started preaching, and you wouldn't believe how big the crowds were, and, and this is what he started preaching. And I imagine that, like, for us, the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5 through Matthew chapter 7, like, like that was probably a big deal. It was probably a big teaching. I promise this is all going to connect. Some of you guys can tell you're looking around going like, where is this guy going? Like, he's passionate, but we have no idea where he's going. So, so I imagine that they were kind of latching on to some of Jesus' teachings. And one teaching that we find is in Matthew chapter 5, and it starts with, with verse 43, and Jesus is speaking, and he says, you know, you've heard it said that you should love your neighbors and hate your enemies. And they're all like, yeah, we like that one. That's a good one. I've got that as a bumper sticker on my car. And Jesus said, and this is huge, in, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 44, Jesus says, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Like that, that's interesting. He doesn't just say love your enemies, but he takes it a step further because sometimes we could think of love and we all have different definitions of love and love is just kind of nebulous, it's cloudy. So Jesus makes it real practical. He, says, he doesn't just say love your enemies. He says, I tell you, love your enemies and pray. Pray for those who persecute you. Now I wish he would just stop there. But then he goes on and there's this, I, I never really thought about the rest of this until the last couple of weeks. I really started meditating on this. He says, I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. I don't like that line. Because there's an insinuation there. Like, the insinuation is, if I don't love my enemies, and if I don't pray for those who persecute me, that I'm not... You following my logic? And as Jesus is saying this, like, I mean, think about this first generation. of And then he goes on. He goes on and he says, and, and if you need an example, here's the thing, that you might be, you know, sons of your father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and good. And he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous, right? So, so we have an example here. It's not just like, like, this is what God does for you. This is what you should do for others. So back to this first generation church and Jesus is already crucified and ascended. He's, he's out of the picture physically. And so as they're praying together, I, I was just thinking about what they're praying. And the scholar said, he said, I believe that these followers of Jesus so took the words of Jesus so seriously that as they were praying, the most prayed for person in the church at this time was Saul. Because they literally took the words of Jesus to love their enemies and to pray for those who persecute them, that they were praying for Saul. And they weren't just praying, you know, the prayers where God suffocate him, God cause him to be childless, God, you know, like those, like they weren't praying those psalms. Like they're praying, I believe, and I don't have anything really to back this up, I believe they're praying, God save Saul. God work in Saul's life. God 
transform him, change him, do something inside of him. I believe that they were broken over Saul. I believe there's people even weeping over Saul, right? Because they took these words of Jesus seriously. So imagine now in Acts chapter 9, and and this is a part that a lot of you have heard before, but we read verses 1 and 2. Let's pick up in verse 3, Acts chapter 9, verse 3. As Saul was approaching Damascus on this mission, remember he had asked the priest for papers to be able to go to Damascus and to find Christians and, and imprison them, right? As he was approaching Damascus on this mission, a light from heaven suddenly shone down around him. It's a supernatural. And he fell to the ground, and he had heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now Saul knows that this is a divine interruption. He's never had an experience like this before, and he knows that this is God who is speaking to him. And so he says, this is an interesting question, who are you, Lord? I think that's powerful, right? Like, that's weird to ask, right? Like, he should just assume it's God. Who are you, Lord? And the voice replied, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. And I think this was an oh snap moment for Saul. I imagine his clothes are now soiled because he is, he's realizing the significance of this moment, right? And listen, this is just a side thought. When someone messes with Jesus' followers, they're messing with Jesus. When someone messes with a follower of Jesus, they're messing with Jesus. And so maybe you feel persecuted. Maybe you feel persecuted by a family member. Maybe that's the person that you identified as the least likely to become a follower of Jesus. Maybe there's someone at school that's persecuting you and saying all kinds of nasty things about you because you're a follower of Jesus. Not just because you're weird or because of whatever, but because you're a follower of Jesus. There's someone. Let me tell you, you daydream about getting revenge. You don't have to. Because when they mess with you, they're messing with Jesus. And Jesus is just. He's the perfect judge. And you don't have to worry about getting even. You don't have to worry about defending yourself. You just just realize he'll take care of things. Let's go back to the story. Verse 6. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. Well, as the story goes on, we find out that he's now blinded, like completely blind. He literally has to be taken by the hand into Damascus to the place that the Lord had revealed to him. And now for three days... He doesn't eat any food, and he's just praying. My thought, we don't see from Scripture, my thought is that there is a brokenness and a repentance that descends upon Saul. I think these are three days of him just weeping before God and confessing his sin before God. Now, I, I, can't, I don't have anything to prove it, but what else was going on for those three days, right? He's not eating anything. He's physically blind. He can't see anything. He can't study anything. He wasn't watching Frasier reruns, right? Like, I mean, something's going on inside of him, right? Pick up verse 10. It says, now there was a believer in Damascus named Ananias. Everybody say Ananias. Okay, for all the astute scholars in this room who have been paying attention to our sermons over the last couple weeks, you go, that name sounds vaguely familiar. I want to assure you, this is not the Ananias of the Ananias and Sapphira claim that we talked about a couple weeks ago. That's not the same Ananias. Ananias was a common name back then. It would be like the name Christopher or David or Robert. Like, you all know multiple individuals like that, right? So this is a different Ananias. This is a godly Ananias. There's a believer in Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord spoke to him in a vision, calling Ananias. Yes, Lord, he replied. 
And the Lord said, go over to Straight Street to the house of Judas, and when you get there, ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul. He is praying to me right now. I have shown him a vision of a man named Ananias coming in and laying hands on him so he can see again. Let's just pause. As soon as the Lord speaks to him that there is a man named Saul from Tarsus, Ananias knows instantly who he's talking about. Saul's fame had preceded him. Everybody knew who Saul was. That's why I submit to you that he was the most prayed for person in the early church. Have you ever felt like God was prompting you to do something, maybe from reading scripture, or maybe in your prayer time you're just listening, and you feel like God prompts you to do something, and and you just know that God couldn't really mean that. (laughs) And so you decide to educate God, like surely God doesn't know the whole story, maybe there's some blanks you need to fill in, and so God, let me, you know, I know you're the king of the universe, I know you have all wisdom, but let me help you out here. Ananias does this. Look, he says, but Lord, exclaimed Ananias, I've heard many people talk about the terrible things this man has done to the believers in Jerusalem. And not only that, God, maybe you don't know this. Here's some information for you, God. He is authorized by the leading priest to arrest everyone who calls upon your name. In other words, God, I'm not going to pray over that guy, right? But the Lord said, go. I, I love that. God does, no, 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 just go. Just go. Go for Saul, and this is shocking. Saul is my chosen instrument to take my message to the Gentiles and to kings, as well as to the people of Israel, and I will show him how much he must suffer for my namesake. So Ananias went and found Saul. And he laid his hands on him, and he said, and this is so significant, because if this was me, if I'm Ananias, I'd be like, all right, I'll do it, but I'm not going to be happy about it. I don't need to respect him to obey you, right? Like, I can go and do what you told me to do, but I don't have to like it. Ever been there? Something significant has happened inside of Ananias, because look at how he addresses Saul. Like, I would think it would be, saw you despicable, disgusting excuse for a human being. I knew Stephen. I don't appreciate what you do. You know, like all these things. Instead, what does he say? Brother Saul. That would be hard. That would be hard. He knows the stories brother? Like, does he have to go that far? Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Those words are dripping with grace. They're dripping with grace. This is, this is an enemy of the church. This guy has been ravaging the church. And instantly, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he got up and was baptized. This is messy. (laughs) Ananias was a man just like you and me. What they were experiencing was on a level of something. We've never experienced this as a church in the United States of America. This was incredibly messy, what God was asking 
Believers were being imprisoned and ex- executed. Properties being confiscated. In the midst of this, God was using the season to accomplish his incredible purposes. But the question that echoes in my mind is a question that isn't literally written in the scriptures we just read. But really, I think it is the question. And the question to Ananias was, Ananias, are you willing? When it comes to the least likely to become followers of Jesus, are you willing? Willing to do what? Are you willing? I think it's a question for you and me. It's a question I've been wrestling with. I don't like it. But the question for me is, Ken, are you willing? Not just to the person who, you know, you know people who you go, man, they're just so close to becoming a Christian. They're like the nicest people, the generous, they give candy to the kids in the neighborhood. Well, you know, not like a weirdo, like that kind of, but you know, who, who really does that other than on Halloween? Uh, you know, there's people that we go, oh, they're just like almost there, right? And then there's the people that we go, not a shot. There's no way. But God loves in fact, Scripture, if you, one of the common threads throughout this book is God taking the least likely. This doesn't just start with Saul in the book of Acts. It starts way back in Genesis. When God takes a conniver, a liar, and he says, I'm going to change your name to Israel. And Jacob, the least likely, becomes a hero. Why we pray for Israel to this day. Pray for the peace of Israel. Ananias had no clue of what God would accomplish through Saul's life. He had no clue. Saul would, obviously most of you in this room know Saul, would become Paul. He would go on to write some of the most pivotal passages of Scripture. While the rest of the apostles stayed in Jerusalem, God would send Saul, now Paul, he would send him out, and he began to evangelize really the uttermost parts of the world at that point, raising up churches and raising up apostles and mentoring young pastors. And Ananias' willingness to obey the call of God led to undeniable revival. We have no idea what God has in the works. We have no idea who God is preparing to be the next leaders of the church. People that we might think are the least likely. So I want to go back to the question I asked you at the beginning. In your orbit, in your sphere of influence, people that you know personally, who is the least likely to become a follower of Jesus? You got that person's name in your mind? Now can I ask you this question? Are you willing? Is he willing to do what to chant? Are you willing to pray for them? Now can I tell you, there's, there's some names that you're thinking of that you go, Sure. And then some of you in this room to pray for that person would be one of the hardest things because they've hurt you. And yeah, I want to pray for them. Yeah, I'll pray for them. But not the kind of prayer that God's asking you to pray. A prayer of forgiveness. A prayer of release. A prayer of blessing. A prayer that they would know him and encounter him and experience his grace and his forgiveness. That's hard. That's hard. The question I want to ask you is, are you willing? Now here's the thing. I'm not, I need you to hear me. Because some of you, the person that you're thinking of is someone who has abused you, who has hurt you, who has done 
hard things to you, I want you to know, I'm not saying that this means that you need to get back into their orbit. Forgiveness and trust are not the same thing. You can forgive somebody from a distance. And so when I say, are you willing, if it is somebody who has abused you, someone who has hurt you, I'm not saying this means that you've got to become their best friend. But I am saying, are you willing to just say, God, I'll do what you want me to do in this situation? I'll pray for them. God, if you give me a word for them, I'll speak it to them or communicate it to them. Are you willing? Do you think God is looking for a church of people who will say, you know, these words that Jesus spoke back in Matthew chapter 5, verse 44, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. It's not just a trite saying. It's a reality that you may be sons and daughters of your Father in heaven who, oh, by the way, causes his son to rise on the evil and the good, and he sends his reign upon the righteous and the unrighteous. So we're going to do something with this. You know, it would be easy for me right now to just say, well, let me just pray over you and let's dismiss. I'm going to ask you in a moment, we're going to, and you don't have to do this, but if you want to do this and you want to participate, when you came in the doors this morning, hopefully you got a permanent marker. If you didn't, maybe we can even have that bucket of markers like up here or something. Does anybody need a marker? Anybody? You got, you need, yeah, we have a few. So do you mind doing that, Megan, when you come up? Just, we'll put it up on the platform and you can grab one if you need one. Here's what I'm going to ask you to do. We're going we're gonna to walk into the, the new worship center. And in the altar area, maybe you're not familiar with what I mean when I say an altar area. It's an area right in front of the platform. And this is a place where we, we're consecrating and saying, God, we want to see people give their lives to Jesus in this space. Here's what I want you to do. In that space, it's really a sacred space. I want you to write down the first name of that person that is the least likely in your orbit to become a follower of Jesus. Now, I just want their first name. Okay, you don't need to write down their email address and their phone number. and Just their first name. Here's the deal. Several months ago, some of you guys, a lot of you sacrificially gave so that we can have carpeting in our new worship center. The money is there. The spirit is willing, but the materials are lacking. If you've been to Lowe's lately or any other place, you know. So we will have it carpeted. It may not be carpeted when we move in. That's not a lack of money for that project. It's a lack of materials, just like everything being available. So eventually those names will be covered up with carpet. But we don't want this to be awkward if your neighbor comes to church the first couple of Sundays and goes up the altar and goes, why is my name written there? That's kind of weird. <laughs> so just the first name. And as you write their name, I, I'm, I'm begging you, don't do this just flippantly. I'm begging you that as you're writing their name on that floor, that this would just be a sacred, prophetic moment. That as you're writing their name, you're also answering the question, are you willing? That you say, God, I'm willing. I'll do whatever you want me to do. I'll say whatever you want me to say. I'll shut my mouth in the times when I normally would say something. You don't want me to say anything. God, I'm yours. I'm all in. And I'm really praying and believing that these names that we're writing, that there will come a day And I'm not talking about the day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, but I'm praying there'll be a day before that day where there'll be knees bowing somewhere. It doesn't have to be in this facility. But there'll be a knee bowing and it'll be a name, it'll be a knee of a name that was written on this day in 2021. 
So if you're game, I'm going to pray for you in a moment. And if you don't want to participate, this is really going to be our closing. And so we already did our announcements. I already told you about the offering and all that stuff. You're welcome to leave. You're welcome to come in and do this and leave. However, however you want to do this, this, this is your moment. There's no people watching to see who participates and who doesn't. So there's no guilt. There's no, I don't want you to feel any manipulation in this whatsoever. And the marker's yours to keep. You can take it home with you. Um, you're, you're, don't say we never gave you nothing, right? <laughs> Let me pray. So God, um, for some people this is going to be really easy, God, and I thank you for that. And then I know there's some people in this room that this is going to be really hard. And I pray for your grace in this moment. And God, I pray right now, I really believe, would you just keep your eyes closed and your heads bowed? I hadn't planned to go here, but I, maybe you're in this room and you feel like you're a Saul. And you just don't believe that God can love you after the things that you've said, after the things that you've done, after the places that you've gone, after the ways that you've hurt other people, after the ways that you've hurt yourself. And you say, Ken, I'd like to know that God could love me, but I, it's hard for me. I just want you to know, if you're in this room, not only can he love you, he does love you. And he loves you so much that he sent his son Jesus to die on the cross to take upon himself the punishment that you deserve. And all you have to do is respond to him. All you have to do is pray, Jesus, I've sinned against you. I don't deserve your love. Would you forgive me? Would you come into my life? Would you empower me? Would you lead my life? I want to follow you and be your disciple. And he'll respond to you. It doesn't matter who you are, how young you are, how old you are. And maybe when you walk into this worship center, you can write your name on the concrete. Wouldn't that be cool? So here's the other thing. Uh, you can open your eyes now. I just dawned on me. There's some people watching online. And you're going, well, that's a nice thing that they're doing. But I'm in a nursing home. I'm, I'm unable to be here. So here's the deal. If you'll write in the comments, whether you're watching on Facebook or YouTube, just whichever platform, if you'd write in, maybe you have a name that you want us to share. Would you just write their name and the, type their name in the comments and one of us will see those comments and we will write that name for you. Is that cool? So God bless you.